0: The John Steigerwald Show, sponsored by ServiceMaster of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van. Portions of today's program may be pre-recorded.
1: Just like downtown, only better. That's what my boss at a summer job that I had in the strip district used to say when he was pleased uh, with the results. Actually, he said, uh, like just like downtown, only better. But that's what he said. That was a long time ago, and I still use it uh, once in a while, even though I never really knew what it meant. But I thought about that saying when I saw a story from the Post Gazette on a, uh, on Twitter about how people don't want to work downtown anymore. A businessman named Robert Fragasso is quoted in the story. He says, "Quote: My clients don't want to come downtown. My employees don't want to come down come downtown." Why am I spending money to be downtown? Seems like a pretty good question. I worked downtown for 23 years, and I'm coming uh, to you right now from an office park up on uh, Green Tree Hill. I parked for free. I won't be dealing with rush hour traffic when I leave. How glad do you think I am that I'm here instead of at Gateway Center today? Employers are having a tough time getting people to leave home to come back to work, has to be a lot tougher for companies with offices downtown, and it used to be that being downtown was a good thing for business. The businesses that you dealt with were there, uh, down there too. You could walk a few blocks to a meeting. Uh, You had couriers running back and forth easily to deliver mail, things like that. Lots of good places to meet for lunch. Then this thing called the internet came along about, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I've been wondering why businesses haven't given up on downtown a long why they didn't give up a long time ago. If your office is in Gateway Center and you made the decision to move to a nice office park, maybe one surrounded by lots of green grass and birds chirping, you, you just gave your employees a $2,000 raise because of the money they're going to save on parking. I wouldn't want to be selling office real estate in any city uh, these days. There could be tumbleweeds Uh, blowing through downtown Pittsburgh someday soon here. When we come back, a nationally known psychiatrist will be here to tell you how TikTok could be making your kids or grandkids do bad things. We'll also get her to talk about the shooting today in Tennessee. And in our second half hour, former Fox News reporter James Rosen. Remember him? Well, he's going to be here to talk about his new book about the life of Antonin Scalia. Stick around.
2: Wouldn't it be great to work in a place that makes a positive impact on the people, businesses, and churches around you? That place exists. I know because I work there. My name is Cassie, and I'm the Digital Marketing Specialist with Salem Media Group in Pittsburgh. Right now, Salem Surround has an opening for one talented salesperson to join our team. Is that you? We'll bring the training. You just bring the talent. An understanding of digital marketing and some direct sales experience will definitely help you stand out. What are you waiting for? Take the first step to a career that is challenging, rewarding, and helps to create terrific results for our amazing customers. Join the sales team at Salem Media Group Pittsburgh. Email your resume to brad.marshall at That's brad.marshall at salempittsburgh.com. Salem Media Group is an equal opportunity employer. From America's number one travel radio show, I'm Robert Carey with today's edition of your RM World Travel Minute. How many of you tuned in, have an electric vehicle, or maybe you're considering purchasing one? I'm not a fan of the EV, but it's not for the reasons you probably think. Road tripping is a fun American thing to do. Good luck, however, taking those treks in your EV and hoping to find available charging stations. Electric vehicles aren't good for the future of our radio show or many of our affiliates across the USA broadcasting on the AM band. As manufacturers like Tesla, Ford, BMW, and Audi, they've all been removing AM radios from their vehicles, citing electromagnetic interference. You know, we tested the Ford F-150 Lightning and Mustang Mach-E on the two-hour long-form version of the show. And we had no noticeable issues getting our favorite AM stations, so I think the manufacturers are trying to cut costs and use it as an excuse. We already have big electric grid issues in this country, and as more EVs hit our roads, the more exacerbated this problem is going to become. I am, however, high on hybrid vehicles and see them as a good alternative in many cases. What do you think? Share your thoughts with me at rmworldtravel.com. Have a great day, everyone.
1: Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with My Pillow is launching MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my exclusive listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free with promo code STAG. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square to get the buy one, get one free offer. Just when you thought MyPillow couldn't get any better, MyPillow 2.0 gives you the best pillow ever. Enter promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087
2: to get your MyPillow 2.0 Now spring cleaning is upon us, but there's one meaningful box that you don't throw away when cleaning out your closet. It's the box filled with your family's important videotapes, film reels, and photos. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako. We started legacy box over a decade ago to help families organize and update their analog media to digital legacy box is simple and easy. It works and is safe. Over a million families have trusted Legacy Box. And Legacy Box has been featured in Good Housekeeping, The Today Show, and Rachel Ray. Legacy Box is like magic, converting your shoebox of memories to the cloud or thumb drive, ready to watch and share. Declutter your closet by digitizing your media. Become more organized and accomplished, knowing your family's recorded past is safe forever. Take advantage of our spring cleaning sale going on now. It's the easiest task to check off your to-do list. For a limited time, you can get started for just $9 a tape. Visit LegacyBox.com slash LBOX to get our $9 sale. That's LegacyBox.com slash LBOX to get our $9 offer. LegacyBox.com slash LBOX.
0: The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer.
1: Well, you probably heard that there was another school shooting uh, today. This time it was at a Christian school in Tennessee, and the shooter is believed to be a 28-year-old woman. Three kids and three adults are dead, last I heard. Uh, we had planned to talk to America's psychiatrist, Dr. Carol Lieberman, about exactly what it is that TikTok does to kids, and we're going to do that. But, uh, Carol, first of all, thanks for being here and coming on again. Always good to have you. Hello.
3: How's this? Can you hear me now? Y-
1: yes, I hear you. There you are. <laughs> Sorry, Carol. I was-
3: yeah. I was
1: saying thank you. Yes, yeah. I'm here. <laughs> so, well, I I as you know, I was going to have you on to talk about TikTok. We'll do that, but um Right. I wanted to talk to you about the shooting if we could. I don't know how much what the details you know of it and I don't know all the details. I just know um a 28-year-old woman is the alleged shooter. Three kids, three adults are dead. And uh we are going to talk to you about the TikTok and why it should be banned. We had a a segment on that on Friday with how it could be banned and why, but we wanted to get your perspective as a psychiatrist about what TikTok does. But would uh, do sure. you want to do you want to address the shooting and just talk about that for a sure. second? We know we know guns sure. guns are, are going to be blamed, right? But, but this sure doesn't match the usual profile, does it?
3: No, it doesn't. And um, you know, of course, one of the most frustrating things is how little information is given out about the shooter. You know, everything is so. Hush, hush. Yeah. Um, All we knew was that she was a female, and they thought she was a teenager. It turns out she's 28. But anyhow, yes, this is very rare, and we don't... I mean, um, I I had said, I had thought beforehand that she would have some connection to the school or somebody at the school, and it turns out that she went to that school, or so some reports are saying. Um, In other words, that it wouldn't be just a random school shooting like we are used to. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes um, there have been some school shootings where the person was connected to it in some way, but um, this was really, you know, obviously, I mean, one... One can only speculate at this point because uh, because we really don't know anything about her. Um, you know, perhaps, obviously, it would seem that she had some bad experience at that school, um, you know. and Yeah, and
1: revenge might be on the... But
3: exactly. The, but you know what? Exactly.
1: It, it, it's a school that only goes up to the fourth grade, I think, or fifth uh, grade. So <laughs> she's, she's 28. She's been gone a long time from there. Maybe she... Yes. Uh, who knows? But.
3: Yes. Then you think you know. Could it have something to do with children? Um, some connection of hers to children? Yeah. Um, her children didn't, didn't get. I don't know. It's so hard. I mean, there's so many different um, possibilities. So it's really hard. But we will. We will. I mean, the other thing, since they thought she was um, a teenager, one can speculate: could she have been really thin and small and on drugs? Yeah. You know. Um, but I don't know. I well, mean, the answer is I don't.
1: Are more people anymore? Uh, inclined to shoot lots of people now than they ever were? Or is it just the 24-hour news coverage when it does happen?
3: Well, no, there are more people. You know, it's a phenomenon called um, bedroom terrorists, um, where, which meaning that during COVID, uh, when we were, most of us were in lockdown, we had more time to go online and to play violent video games. And um, there, is, there have been years, decades of research on this showing that the more violent video games you play, the more aggressive you become. Not everybody becomes a school shooter, but they could become, or a mass shooter, but they, they are more violent, you know, domestic violence, parking, uh, fighting over parking spots, air rage, all of that. And so when the lockdowns were over people came into society loaded with bear for bear
1: yeah uh, would the media be preventing shootings if they all agreed not to identify the killer in these things
3: oh uh, I, I I mean yes part of that is that the killer gets fame and you know um, people are thinking that um, you know that we're in this strange Uh, existential kind of no man's land right now after lockdowns where no one really knows yet what normal is. And a lot of people are feeling like that we're more in touch with our mortality. And so a lot of people are feeling like, you know, hey, I'm going to die soon anyway, or um, this world has changed us too much. Um, You know, I don't want to be in it anymore. And so people are just doing things that, you know, five years ago, they would have never imagined themselves doing.
1: Well, um, and we're talking to Carol Lieberman. She's known as America's psychiatrist, and uh, she's also the author of Lions and Tigers and Terrorists. Oh my! How to protect your child in a time of terror. Um, you know, you hear about uh, suicide by cop, where a person right. commits a crime, pretty much knowing that he's going to get in a shootout with the cops and he's going to be killed. Right. Um, yes, yeah. is is uh, is this? Be, has this become? Uh, a new way to commit suicide by cop. In other words, it's lot. It's a lot more impressive if that's what you're looking for, to go out uh, uh, with a bang. Uh, no pun intended, by shooting a bunch of people before you get killed by the cops, and you, you know, leaving a, I guess a, a legacy. You could call it.
3: Yes. Yes, going down in history, yeah, one way or the other. If you can't do it for, you know, making some big accomplishment and uh, t- that you're giving to society, then this is a quick way to do it. Um, not a preferable way. No. Um, yes, you know, I mean, suicide by cop has been around for quite a while, but yes, it does seem as though there are more of them, you know, um, possibly because there are more of such crimes, but also... Um, You know, we are certainly certainly seeing. uh, It seems like we're seeing more of them.
1: Well, you're you're a psychiatrist, and I'm wondering if you could just um, try to get inside someone's head who um, who has suicidal thoughts, and instead of um, you know uh, uh, going down the garage and turning the car on, or just pulling out a gun and shooting themselves in the head. They sit around and they, they have this suicidal thought, but they also have the wherewithal and the incentive to um, create this gigantic tragedy that in many cases takes a lot of planning. And um, it just seems like for someone who – it just seems strange to me that someone could be suicidal on one hand and this detailed in how they're going to commit suicide and seeming so yeah. sane in their insanity –
3: Yes. Well, there is a flip side. I mean, between suicide and homicide, there's sort of two sides of the same coin. And sometimes it takes very little for a person to flip between one and the other. They may plan to commit suicide and then, you know, because it really has to do with rage. And either they direct the rage towards themselves and kill themselves or they direct it towards other people.
1: And so they, this, these people do both. They, they accomplish both.
3: Yes, right.
1: Well, now on to TikTok. Um, we talked about cro- Congress working on banning it here on the show on Friday. Uh, what is it about TikTok that makes it harmful to kids?
3: TikTok um, is what I call um, the Chinese spy balloon of the Internet, um, and it is child abuse. It's very dangerous for kids. It's very dangerous for adults as well, for that matter. But it's especially teens and young adults who are going on TikTok. Um, there's a problem, two problems. One is with the spying aspect that the communist Chinese, Chinese Communist Party is collecting our data. And the second is with the content of TikTok. There is such dangerous... Um, Content, you know, both in terms of uh, challenges that they present that kids are just like (laughs) so ready to jump on challenges like how to kill yourself, talking about killing yourself, Um, and and at the uh, I watched the hearing. Um, It was it was so oh it was just so you you feel dirty when you I don't know if you saw it but it I I saw parts of it yeah um, because. The CEO of TikTok was just, um, you can t- he was just lying. You know, every time he opened his mouth, he either lied or he said, I'll get back to you on that. Now, mm. what do you mean, I'll get back to you on that? He knew he was going to be testifying at this hearing. You would think that he would have prepared the answers to <laughs> things that he expected to be asked. But there are things on there, uh, content-wise, there are things on there like uh, that make kids uh, depressed and anxious that tell kids, as I was saying, with these challenges, whether it's um, how to, you know, how to choke yourself so you can get uh, sexual excitation, you know, a, a thrill out of it. And then, of course, uh, I mean, there was a case, at least one case, where um, the the child did, you know, went too far and he choked himself and he died. Um, there are, there was the example that they gave in the hearing there were these parents of um, a boy who had followed some TikTok advice, um, telling him that, you know, you should kill yourself because the world isn't worth it and this and that. And he stood in front of a train and uh, got killed. Um also, there are things, apparently, uh, TikTok has gotten into the incel game, you know, like Brian Koberger telling young men why they should become incels and how they should hate women and, you know, um, women are terrible and all the things, you should rape them and kill them and all of this. Um, also, what else do they do? Uh, oh, well, one of the things that bothers me as a psychiatrist is that there are people on TikTok... You know anybody can go on TikTok mm-hmm. and and make an account, and so there are these people who have questionable uh, mental health credentials who are giving all this advice and um, not very good advice in many cases, and and also in addition to it, not being good advice, um, when they're talking about symptoms of certain kind of kinds of disorders, um, kids have now been taking those symptoms, acting out those symptoms, pretending that they have or believing that they have and then accentuating these various symptoms, like borderline personality or something. Um, and and so they, they develop or, or pseudo-develop uh, these kinds of psychiatric problems. I mean, there are just any, anything that you can think of that is, is bad, um, you can find on TikTok.
1: And what is it that makes it addicting, though? I mean, how, how is that... TikTok itself more addicting than some other things that pop up on the internet. What did the Chinese uh, come upon that they found out they could not only entertain kids and maybe um, uh, and maybe infect them with the propaganda, but also addict them to it?
3: Well, yes. Well, that's the whole game of all of these social media platforms, you know, Facebook, Instagram, all of them are trying to do the same thing, which is to addict the kids, viewers, um, so that they'll spend more time on the platform, because then they can show them more ads, and they can charge more for the ads. um And that's how they make their money. You know, people think, oh, this is great. This is free stuff. It's not free. <laughs> Your viewing is being sold to all these advertisers. And they the way TikTok, I think, does it better or worse, depending upon how you look at it, um, is that they are, are really quick at sending you, if you look up something about whatever topic you look up, they send you more of it. So if you look up something like uh, depression... They send you more and more um, TikToks, you know, views of things that relate to depression. So that would include suicide, for example. And it just—it's just overwhelming, you know—the the, the things that you see um, and and you hear and um, you know—it's just—it's it, before you know it, you're sucked in, and you think, yeah, that's a good idea.
1: What age are we talking about here, Carol? I mean it could
3: be any age. You know, that was one of the interesting things too. I don't know if you saw this part, but he was uh, the CEO was asked about do his kids watch these things? Yeah, yeah. Um, y- did you see that? Yeah, and he, he said, said, well, no. my kids live in Singapore, so they yeah. can't see these things. What a cop out. <laughs> and if they lived in America, you see I mean that and that showed that the kids in America are getting very different things on TikTok than um kids in Singapore or you know China um uh you know they're getting actually more educational kinds of things so this is all you know we hear we're we're seeing more and more of um china you know saying being more aggressive being more openly aggressive to america and this is i mean when you see that there's no question that this is part of their plan to um to first of all to dumb down kids and second of all to, um, you know, get them to, to, to warp their mind in all these different ways.
1: And what's the long-term effects? You know, you, you talk about a kid, um, you know, kids standing in front of a train. And what about when these kids are no longer kids? We, we, don't, we haven't seen that yet. TikTok's pretty new. Um, what are these 15-year-old, 14-year-old girls going to be doing when they're 25 as a result of what they were doing on TikTok now?
3: Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, the, people just like just like what you're doing in real life um causes memories that affect you and behaviors that, you know, affect you later on. I mean, it's not like um they go away, you know. Uh I think it's going to like a good example would be the girls who um watch tiktok videos about their body you know about whether it's uh how how thin they all should be you know how guys only like girls who look like this um uh and and they get that impression and then they go and have plastic surgery and all of that and 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 of course it's affecting you know that's what they think about themselves and that's what they're going to teach to their daughters
1: yeah and and um any reason to expect enough parents to prevent their kids from using it uh, to put TikTok out of business? Or does it have to well, be the government to put them out?
3: Well, you know, in a perfect world, it would be parents who would prevent kids from watching TikTok, spending all these hours on TikTok. Um, but And not just saying you can't watch it, but really it would have to be, because there's no way of controlling that completely. You know, they could watch it with a friend or yeah, right. um but what you have to do is, like, talk about all, all of these examples of dangerous things that are on TikTok and talk to your child about how, you know, why this is bad, what this means, what happens to you when all of this goes through your mind and how this will affect you for the future.
1: Well, Carol, I'm out of time. Uh, I appreciate it. And I think uh, TikTok's going to be around for a while. We'll see. When next time we have you on, maybe it'll be banned. <laughs> that, that would be a yes, good
3: certainly. thing. I certainly hope
1: so. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on the show again. appreciate it.
3: You're welcome.
1: Okay, that's Dr. Carol Lieberman. We'll be right back.
0: With SRN News, I'm John Scott. There's been another school shooting in America with reports of seven dead, including three children. At a private school in Nashville, Tennessee.
3: There are images of students in their parochial school uniforms being let out hand-in-hand by police. The Covenant School has about 200 students, grades pre-K through 6th. Metro Nashville police say the gunman is dead after a firefight with officers. A local reporter's mother-in-law works at the school and said she had gone outside for a break. When she came back in, she heard the gunfire. I'm Jackie Quinn. The
0: shooter identified as a 28-year-old woman who had entered the school through a side entrance. North Carolina-based First Citizens will buy Silicon Valley Bank. The deal could reassure investors at a time of shaken confidence in the banking industry. This is SRN News.
4: People ask me sometimes, Lance, I'm worried about my finances and I feel bad because I shouldn't be worried, right? I realize that inflation is going to be eating up money. I've got to do something to get around this crazy stock market and Biden's spending spree. Gold has, since the beginning of time, been the resource that God's people have relied on. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, is what the prophet Haggai said during a time of great shaking. To protect your retirement, I recommend that you diversify your 401k or IRA right out of paper assets and into physical gold. And the best way to do that is with Gold IRA from the Birch Gold Group. I want you to text the words FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, to 989898 and get a free info kit on gold IRAs. There's no strings attached to this. So Just text FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, to 989898 and see what I've discovered here about gold and its ability to stabilize your investment and create a storage of wealth for you in unsteady times.
1: Hey, John Steigerwald here for Johnny and Jesse Samick, my friends over at Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. When disaster strikes your home or business, demand the yellow van. Fire, water, or mold, Service Master's technicians are trained and equipped to get you back to normal fast. Even when dealing with insurance, you have a choice who repairs and cleans up the mess. Make sure you demand the yellow van. Call Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand
0: the yellow van. Service Master. Sometimes it seems like America has gone upside down. Sometimes it seems like everybody's lost their mind. Everything we believe in has now become wrong. And what the other side believes in is getting the best of us. Hey, when you start to feel that way, just remember, you're here listening for a reason. You're here because you know the truth. And so do others like you. It's through that knowledge that you learn how to fight this culture war. We have to fight it. We have to win it. AM 1250, the answer.
1: Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my exclusive listeners, the My my Pillow 2.0 is buy one get one free with promo code STAG. My Pillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money back guarantee. Just go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener square to get the buy one get one free offer. Just when you thought my pillow couldn't get any better, My Pillow 2.0 gives you the best pillow ever. Enter promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087 to get your My pillow 2.0s now. AM 1250 and FM92.5,
0: the answer. WPGP Pittsburgh, a division of Salem Media Group. Listen on the answer mobile app, smart speakers, tune in, iHeart, or Odyssey. AM 1250, the answer weather.
4: Tonight, we'll see low clouds. Expect a nighttime low of 33. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, we'll reach a high of 48. Partly cloudy skies tomorrow night with a low of 27. As we look to Wednesday, we'll see clouds limiting sunshine. It will be breezy in the afternoon. We'll reach a high Wednesday of 53. With your AccuWeather forecast,
0: I'm Drew Shannon. This is the John Stuckerwalch Show on AM twelve fifty and FM ninety two point five. The answer. You
2: know.
1: <clears throat> Antonin Scalia died in uh, Scalia, I should say, died in twenty sixteen. He was a Supreme Court justice for thirty years. He's one of the great uh, heroes of the conservative movement. James Ro- Rosen is the uh, chief Washington correspondent for Newsmax, and he's the author of Scalia: Rise to Greatness, nineteen thirty six to nineteen eighty six. He joins us now. James, thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations
5: on the book. Oh, you're very kind to have me. Thank you.
1: So uh, this is volume one. I, I'm just wondering, did, did you start out with a plan for two volumes, or was it a case of finding out you just had too much good material for one book?
5: You said it exactly. This started out as a concise biography of Antonin Scalia, and I suppose the one person, John, who was less than pleased at the metastasizing of this project into a, multi, a two-volume massive book project is Mrs. Rosen, who understood that this would mean a two-year extension on Justice Scalia's lease on the lives of the Rosen family.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah,
5: <laughs> but yeah I, you know, I knew Justice Scalia a little bit. I was privileged to, um, to know him. I, uh, when I first came to Washington in 1999 as a young correspondent uh, at the time for the Fox News Channel, one of the first things I did was write to Justice Scalia seeking an interview. And this commenced between us an a unusual and sometimes amusing correspondence that spanned over two years' time. And we also had lunch a couple times, one-on-one, on one, just the two of us each time. They were off the record, mm-hmm. uh, but we drank wine. He made me eat off of his plate, John. I said, Mr. Justice, <laughs> I couldn't. He said, come on, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables from Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. Uh, and he even gave me a ride back to my office both times. That's and amazing. I confirmed, John, with uh, students who were classmates of Antonin Scalia's who traveled with him for debate tournaments all the way back in the 1950s, up through Supreme Court clerks into the 21st century that— Being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia was as unnerving an experience for them as it was for me. He was very generous to a young reporter all those years ago. This was around 1999, 2000, 2001, that I resolved that someday I would write about him.
1: So the seeds for this book were planted back then, 24 years ago.
5: Even longer, because I first became fascinated with Justice Scalia when I was a high school student in the 1980s, watching him on these PBS programs where there were sort of theater-in-the-round settings where they'd have eminent minds debate hypothetical situations. And he was just struck me as so fundamentally different from the other people on these panels. He was sarcastic and funny, and he spoke in a language that a non-lawyer could understand. And that's why I wrote to him some 15 years later when I made it to Washington
1: it's uh, getting back to the fact that he uh, accepted or, or, or corresponded with you or or gave you the time of day, I guess might, might surprise <laughs> people that a you know a punk reporter uh, would get the intention of a of a uh, a, a an esteemed supreme court justice were, were you surprised well, that you, uh, with the response <laughs> you
5: got I was i mean i wrote we had a sort of very amusing back and forth uh, the the substance of discussion that we had at those lunches which I think were historically significant, will nonetheless remain off the record. Um, In volume two, I do hope to publish from the excerpts from our correspondence, but I will tell you one thing that happened in lunch. So I got there first. This was a place called the A.V. Ristorante Italiana. It was a very modest Italian restaurant that was at that time located in a fairly sketchy part of Washington, and it was his go-to place since the 1950s. I got there first, and there was sunshine flooding through the front door and suddenly in walks this silhouetted figure, sort of portly and, and strolling jauntily towards me, and it's just a Scalia. And he sits down, and pleasantries are effectuated, and then he takes the menu. And he says to the waiter, who's a young guy who spoke Italian and was, barely spoke English, and he said to him, pulpy, what is pulpy? And the guy says, octopus. And he says, ah, octopus, I'll have the pulpy, and he hands the menu to the waiter. Now, I have little rules I follow when I'm meeting with important people, and I want to maintain eye contact, nothing that I have to eat with my hands, nothing that splatters like pasta, you know, something easily manipulable with a knife and fork. And I just said, and I come from Staten Island, which is 66% Italian. And I just said, veal Parmesan, please. And the guy's writing it down and Justice Scalia interrupts. He says, no, no, no. give him the rabbit. The what? And then the waiter and I look at Scalia and in unison, we say rabbit. He goes, yeah, he's going to like, you're going to like the rabbit. Give him, give him the rabbit. And the guy walks off. Now (laughs) here was, i had never had rabbit in my life, okay? I didn't want rabbit. Um, and here was the uh the, the country's foremost opponent of judicial activism personally overruling my lunch order, which <laughs> <laughs> hasn't happened to me since, and I'll tell you that I haven't had rabbit since either. How was it? Was it any good? <laughs> I got to tell you, I, you know, I was so, you know, unschooled in these things. I thought, well, is it served like the way sometimes fish is served or like the head still on or yeah, something? And, yeah. John, there was some sort of dollop of green something or other. In my mind, it kind of looks like salt, like uh, like guacamole or something. Yeah. And I just made the mistake of putting my fork into this thing, and it was clear to me instantly that I, this is something I don't know what it is. I'm going to have to shove it into my mouth and swallow it while maintaining eye contact, and no matter how bad it is, just keep nodding. And to this day, I don't know what that was.
1: Um, do you think people will be surprised when they read the book? Just to, what you've said here in the three or four minutes you've been on, that, you know, this is a, uh, a Supreme Court justice. You think of them as these, you know, dignified, um, reserved people, and this guy sounds like he was a maniac. Well,
5: oh, he was certainly a lot of fun to be around, and um, he he made his judicial decision, the opinions that he wrote, that way as well. Uh, he, he would place humor in them, sometimes saying, things often come to us uh, as a wolf dressed as a sheep. This case comes to us dressed as a wolf, he would say. Uh, Or when somebody tried to take too expansive a meaning out of a regulation somewhere, he would say Congress is not in the habit of hiding elephants in mouse holes. Um, So he had a way of making the law palatable to non-lawyers. And this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, it's the same thing. you, You can read it if you're not a lawyer. There will be times I promise you you'll be cracking up laughing. This captures the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. And there were two previous biographies of Justice Scalia that are out there. Both were published in his lifetime. One of them he cooperated with extensively. The other not at all. And they both came out in the same place, which was fairly open in their hostility to Justice Scalia. So this is the most comprehensive treatment of his life. I've gained access to all sorts of documents and and sources that his previous biographers either overlooked or which were unavailable to them. And I like to say that this is the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring one. It's the first that really takes into account in the depth it it deserves um, the power of his Catholicism and how that fueled his rise. It also examines in greater depth than anywhere else the role and the extraordinary contributions and sacrifices of his wife, Maureen Scalia, who raised their nine children, the justice always said, with very little help from him. So this is a book about the American dream This is a book about one of the most important Americans in the last hundred years. This is the book that Scalia fans and everyone who's interested in an accurate history of modern American law and society has been waiting for.
1: The book is uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. We're talking to the author, uh, James Rosen. Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, the fact that he was a devout Catholic. There are three of those on the court now. Did his faith... Uh, inform his interpretation of the Constitution?
5: Only in a limited way, and he was very sensitive on this point. Justice Scalia never wanted anyone to believe that he would uh, inject his Catholic views or the tenets of the Catholic faith into his rulings on the law. He was guided by originalism. Uh, There's a liberal notion that the Constitution is a living, expanding document that can expand as the times warrant to take account of phenomena that the founders could never have envisioned, like nuclear weapons or the internet. Um, Scalia stood athwart all that. He said the meaning of the Constitution today is the exact same meaning it had at the time that it was enacted, same for any statute. And if we inject new expansive expansive meanings into these legal texts, then it's in essence as if we're going back in time and robbing a previous generation of their democratic self-governance. Imagine if you liked the law that President Biden signed last year, protecting a same-sex marriage. Um, what if 10 years from now a judge or a justice comes along and says, well, actually it should mean this. We want to expand the meaning to mean this. Uh, That would interfere with your self-governance today. Um, And so, in any case, um, Scalia was a profound believer in the original text, and the way to to discern the original meaning was through uh, the text of the Constitution or that law. This was radical when he first proposed this in the 1980s. By the time he died, no less a a figure then Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, a, a liberal appointed by, uh, by Barack Obama, proclaimed that as a result of, in effect, of Scalia's revolution, uh, which changed the way that lawyers write about the law, issue decisions about the law, even craft the law, we are all originalists now, she said.
1: Wow. Um, and and it, does, that, does that explain why it's hard to find a book that is written uh, in admiration of him?
5: Perhaps. I mean, the, the two previous writers were liberals, yeah. uh, and every phase of his career is interpreted in the most tendentious light in those books. And some portions of his life and career are just skipped over entirely. Uh, you asked about whether uh, he tried to imbue his decisions with Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And again, he just wanted to be guided by the original meaning of the law or that was at, at play in that particular case. He would, And in fact, one of his friends once published an op-ed asserting that he was putting his Catholicism into his opinions, and it caused a rift between them that lasted five years. Scalia would say about this, there's no such thing as a Catholic hamburger. The closest <laughs> we can come to a Catholic hamburger would be a hamburger that is made perfectly.
1: Uh, that's, well, it, it's, it's interesting that, um, that he was a, a devout Catholic. There are three of those on the court now, as I said. How do you think he'd feel about that?
5: Well, I, having just laid out his philosophy that latter day sensibilities uh, are not to be grafted onto existing canons or existing canons of work or texts, you'll have to forgive me if I'm leery of attributing to Antonin Scalia, who mm-hmm. passed from the scene seven years ago, any specific thoughts about current events or personality.
1: Yeah. Um, did, did he? And this is interesting because uh, the book, you, you, you know. This guy is, is, if he's well known to people, it's because he was a, a Supreme Court justice. And he, for most people, he wasn't very well known unless you were really following things closely, you know, coming out of Washington. Um, so he didn't become interesting to people until he became a Supreme Court justice. So um, what? I just think it's kind of interesting that you are writing a book about a guy. And you're, it, it ends with him becoming a Supreme Court justice. Because
5: and, it's, a, it's a great question, and, it, and it, I made that decision as a writer because there was, as you say, so much great material. Yeah. Um, when he worked for the Nixon administration in his first job in government, young Antonin Scalia was the general counsel to a newly formed agency called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And that office basically made it so that instead of only one entity being allowed to launch domestic space satellites into space, which was a, public, a quasi-public entity called ComSat, the, um, the business of domestic space satellite launches could be opened up for free market competition, where any qualified firm with the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves could launch a domestic space satellite into space. And uh, Scalia and his boss got that through the bureaucracy. It's called the Open Skies Policy, and it turbocharged the telecom revolution that we know today. And in fact, in in being the first reporter to go through Scalia's papers in great depth at that, that agency, the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy, we find that in 1971, Scalia predicted that in the future, people would sit at remote computer terminals. He called it the Computer Society. And not only would they have access to hundreds of different channels of television, but they would do their banking at these remote terminals, and they'd be able to retrieve information from any library in the world. He basically predicted the Internet in 1971. Wow. So uh, as we read more and more about Antonin Scalia's life, before he became a Supreme Court justice, uh, we learn just how central he was in so many different points in American history.
1: We're talking to James Rosen. The book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Uh, it's interesting that he was saying that about uh cable t v and and the internet and everything back in nineteen seventy one uh, i 'm old and i when my first job coming out of college as I was waiting to get a real job in broadcasting was selling cable t v door to door in nineteen seventy two and I had to go to the door and, and explain to people what it was, and I had to point to the silver cable out on the street you know on the telephone wires out on the street and say, that, well, they're going to get a cable, and they're going to run it to your house. And people said, I'm never paying for television. I'm not doing that. And they also said, that's how the government's going to spy on us. with So that, that, that's what I was dealing with. But I, he, he was pretty prescient there, wasn't he?
5: He was. And there are other aspects of his life before joining the Supreme Court that are equally important in terms of his contribution to American history. Uh, he was uh, in the Department of Justice in the post-Watergate period, when there were a lot of greedy and reckless ideas flying around from the Democrats who controlled Capitol Hill and liberals in the news media aimed at emasculating the powers of the presidency after Watergate. And Scalia and some other conscientious conservatives at that time understood that after Watergate and its subsidiary scandals faded from the headlines, the country would still need a strong executive. And Scalia fought to preserve the powers of the executive. Um, one other aspect of it is that he, for a brief period of time, found himself being charged with the duty of uh, reviewing and approving or rejecting all covert operations that the Ford White House wanted to run. And a story told here in this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, for the first time, is that on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, he gets a call from the Ford White House where they say, Nino, we need your opinion uh, from the Department of Justice uh, within the next three hours as to whether it would be lawful under the War Powers Act for the U.S. military to land its helicopters on the roof of the American embassy in Saigon and get our people out that way. Of course, we've all seen Mm -hmm. these famous photographs from the fall of Saigon, April 30, 1975, with that taking place, people being evacuated off the roof of the embassy by helicopter. Scalia gave a legal opinion saying it was lawful, but he said, and this is published here for the first time in this book, what if I hadn't? Would they really have called off this evacuation operation on the advice of counsel? What is the world coming to?
1: Yeah, well, well he, he you uh, mentioned that this book you know, only covers his life from his birth to when he became a Supreme Court justice. Um, what was his, but just before he became a justice, he had to be confirmed. What was his confirmation
5: hearing like? Hmm. Scalia was confirmed by a vote of 98 to nothing on September 17, 1986, uh, Constitution Day, quite fittingly. Mm-hmm. Now, his nomination was paired with another one, which was the nomination to elevate associate justice, William Rehnquist, to become chief justice because of the retirement of the outgoing chief justice, Warren Berger. And that was a very bitter and nasty and partisan process. Um, Rehnquist survived. Uh, He prevailed with a vote of 65 to 33. Those 33... Uh, uh, opposition votes being the highest number ever s- recorded by any confirmed nominee at that point. Today, it's routinely 52 to 48 and what have you. Yeah. But it was so, such a nasty process, they called it the requisition, And this is a story that's told no place else uh, until now. And it opens up the book, Scalia Rise to Greatness. It was told to me by John Bolton. Yes, that John Bolton, wow. former national security advisor yeah. and U.N. ambassador. Back in 1986, he was a Justice Department official. It was his job to corral Scalia and find him on the night of the big Senate vote. And he found him at the Willard Hotel and got him to come to a a dedicated phone line in the kitchen of the Willard Hotel. And the two men knew each other. Bolton had the mustache at that time, by the way. I did confirm this. Uh, Bolton had been at AEI along with Scalia. Uh, They knew each other well. And he says to him, Nino, congratulations. You've just been confirmed by the U.S. Senate 98 to nothing. Isn't that wonderful? And there's a pause on the other end of the line, and it's quiet. And then Scalia says, who were the two senators who didn't vote? <laughs> and Bolton says, oh, well, it was it was Barry Goldwater and Jake Garn, but isn't this incredible? Congratulations, Nino." And there's a pause again. It's silent. And Scalia says, with a hint of rebuke in his voice, you mean to tell me we couldn't get Goldwater and Garn? Which, by all rights, would have been two, two pretty sure votes for Scalia. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my research showed what happened, which was that... Uh, Barry Goldwater went home sick that night because the vote was delayed, mm. and and uh, Jake Garn, Republican of Utah, was otherwise uh, disposed. At this point, as as John Bolton tells me the story, I began to grow a little irritated because after the requisition, 98 to nothing is looking pretty good, and he says to him, Nino, uh, Barry Goldwater we couldn't find and Jake Garn is in the hospital donating his kidney to his daughter. (laughs) Concentrate, (laughs) Nino. You've just been confirmed 98 to nothing. And there's a pog again, and finally Scalia says, you're right, that's great, you're right. (laughs) But do you know that uh, even after he was on the Supreme Court for 19 terms, well into the 21st century, you can find on the C-SPAN online video archive uh, a talk that Justice Scalia is giving to students where he recounts that he was confirmed 98 to nothing and then adds, so let's make it 100. This tiny imperfection of 98 to nothing bothered him into the 21st century. Drove him
1: nuts. Hey, hey, uh, I'm out of time, James. Uh, James Rosen, the book is Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James Rosen, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. Good luck with the book. Thanks for coming on.
5: John, thanks for having me. Okay,
1: and that's James Rosen. We'll be right back. John here for Johnny and Jesse Samick, my friends over at Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. When disaster strikes your home or business, demand the yellow van. Fire, water, or mold, Service Master's technicians are trained and equipped to get you back to normal fast. Even when dealing with insurance, you have a choice who repairs and cleans up the mess. Make sure you demand the yellow van. Call Service Master of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand the yellow van service
0: master. Hi, this is Rhett Rasmussen of BestHotGrill.com. We make the amazing Solaire Infrared Gas Grills that are built to last and will consistently deliver better than restaurant grilled food. The Solaire Infrared Burner heats up to 1,000 degrees in just three minutes, even in the dead of winter. The high heat locks in the juices and flavor and grills food faster. Learn more about these fantastic USA-made grills at BestHotGrill.com. Solaire Hot Fast Grills at BestHot Grill.com.
1: Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with My Pillow is launching MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my exclusive listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free with promo code STAG. MyPillow 2.0 temperature regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square to get the buy one, get one free offer. Just when you thought MyPillow couldn't get any better, MyPillow 2.0 gives you the best pillow ever. Enter promo code STAG or call 800-716-8087 to get your MyPillow 2.0. 2.0s now. The John Steigerwall Show. AM 1250, The Answer. Oh, a couple of quick sports notes to go here. Uh, there's a story about a kid, I think it was a high school uh, or college, um, college or high school, I forget, uh, baseball team game, and the kid hit a home run and he did a black bat flip. Uh, he got about halfway down the first baseline. He just kind of flipped his bat. He got suspended for that because um, it's, you know, taunting or something. So I started thinking about something, you know, I'm not a big fan of bad flips, but it doesn't bother me really that much. But isn't running around the bases kind of showing off? I mean, the the the, the play's over. You hit the ball, it's out of the park. They, you know, you don't want to – why would you want to hurt the pitcher's feelings? You're going around the bases there. You're looking at him. He's all dejected with his head down. People are screaming and yelling, and you're dancing around the – I think it's terrible. I think – and they could shave a minute or two off the game and uh, – Just have the guy hit the home run, ball leaves the ballpark, and he goes and sits down in the dugout. That's it. The score goes up on the scoreboard. The other thing, real quick, Josh Yowie, writing at The Athletic, he says it always needs to be mentioned on March 26th, which isn't today, but that's okay. Mario Lemieux played eight times on March 26th, and those eight games he produced 16 goals, 14 assists, and 30 points, good for 3.75 points per game. And if he had played yesterday, he might have gotten a point or two at the age of 56. Talk to you tomorrow.
0: The John Steigerwald Show is a production of Salem Media Group and sponsored by ServiceMaster of Greater Pittsburgh. Demand, the yellow van.